This is BioBusters, Professors Hanging Out Talking Science, episode number 18, recorded on August 28th, 2019. Hello, folks, you are listening to the podcast that takes you beyond the classroom and into the trenches of science. I'm Dr. Abi Abdallah, and I'm here with Dr. Fawner. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Wednesday, I mean, can't really complain about it being a Wednesday. And, you know, we have a special guest here. Dr. We do Chris have a special Keller. guest. And one thing that I always notice when I come into this office is it smells so great. Dr. I mean, Keller's office. Well, he's got whatever that little infusion. What, what, what is that infusion thing you got going on? Oh, it's a diffuser for essential diffuser. oils. Diffuser. Yeah. And right. every time I come in here, it's just like. It smells uh, like a laundry room. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah, very yeah. common. It's, it's very common. <laughs> yeah. I go into my room or my office. There's no windows. You know, the smell of stale oh, yeah, coffee. Yeah, you're right. We, he has windows sure. we don't mm-hmm. he's got a corner office he's uh he's a big boss yeah so and it looks like it's gonna rain so it does look like <laughs> it's gonna rain so you had a torturous uh, hour maybe Something not necessarily like torturous um it was it was useful honestly it gave me an idea of pace and there were a few images that you know one or two figures i had that could be potentially distracting for the mms students um, so for those of you listening fauna had to give a mock talk today yeah, body fluid, uh, body fluid compartments, and just the beginning of renal anatomy and whatnot. So fantastic. Yeah, a lot of review, some stuff I need to cut out, but overall, I'll be optimistic. It was useful. All right, good, good. Well, uh, let's do uh, let's do today's birthday, and then we get into our uh, topic with our guest. How about that? Not a work. So today's birthday, um, George Hoyt Whipple. He was an American physician and pathologist who shared the 1934 Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine with George R. Minot and William P. Murphy. And they got this Nobel Prize for their discoveries of a treatment of pernicious anemia with a special diet of the liver. <laughs> So, yeah, Yum. pretty cool. Yeah, it's right. tasty. Great. Yeah, it's sounds... bacon and onions, right? Well, you can make anything taste great with bacon and onions. Well, you can saute That's the only way liver tastes good. <laughs> I think my grandma always used to make liver, you know, I had to serve and, that uh, as a waiter a long time ago. Oof. It's always smelled. Liver. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, do you remember the animal? I'm sure it was beef. It was at a restaurant. Yeah. Okay. Huh. I, I remember I never got a taste from it. It just... People it, also eat chicken liver. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right, well, back to, back Learn to something new every day. So <laughs> back to Whipple. Um, Whipple began a study in 1920 of the influence of food on um, how your blood kind of regenerates and replenishes. And he did his experiments on dogs and he did experiments to reduce the blood volumes of dogs. And he found that the best food to stimulate the bone marrow for the production of new red blood cell corpuscles was actually raw liver. Hmm. Yeah. I bet you that study did not go through an eye cook. Well, back, back in then, what, 1920? 1920? Probably not. <laughs> Probably didn't have to worry too much 100 years ago about, about I, cooks, I don't know. Huh? Yeah. I, have, I have dogs. They love to eat liver, I'm sure. Yeah, well, hey, yeah. Uh, their yeah. blood is great. Uh, erythro, well, is that erythropoiesis, right? The production of new red blood cells? Mm-hmm. Erythropoiesis, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Coming from the physiologist, I guess I should know that. Um, other foods, including kidney and apricots, were also found mm. to be helpful. And um, from these studies and these data, um, they applied Whipple's main discovery of the value of the liver, designed a special diet for humans with a particular non-infectious disease, um, pernicious anemia, and kind of helped to advance non-drug treatments of that condition. Nice. Now, Dr. Keller was saying earlier that, uh, is this the guy where Whipple's disease is named after? Yeah. Yes, yes. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you for that scientist born today. Any Any uh, clarifications? I don't think so. Um, We had an email that we're going to get to at the end of the episode, right? But in in terms of clarifications, um, I think we did everything perfect last time. Ah, I don't know about that. Perfect. (laughs) I have a lot to live up to today. Yeah, we'll have our listeners decide that, buddy. Uh, uh, Okay, so we have Dr. Uh, Christopher Keller with us today. Hello. 
He is a professor here at LECOM, Lake Erie College of Osteopathic Medicine, where we are. Yeah, I was going to say, right, welcome. Do you, do you want to give a little bit of a background, you know, what your a brief synopsis of kind of your CV, what you do, what you sure. teach for our listeners? Sure. Uh, so I, uh, I teach microbiology and immunology here, and, and we're glad to have Dr. B. Abdullah join, join our crew. Uh, I've been here about 14 years. Uh, I grew up in the area in a little town called Warren that's not too far away from, from Erie. And, uh, just Warren, fell in PA, love. Right? Warren PA, right? Warren PA. Yeah, not Warren Ohio. That's yeah. true. Yeah. That's true. It's about the same distance from here. Uh, I went to the University of Pittsburgh for my undergrad and grad and and postdoc work and uh, absolutely love the Pittsburgh area. Go Steelers. Nice. And, uh, nice school. You know, it is. A lot of people don't. A lot of people forget that that place, I mean, Pitt is like 17 something, right? Like it's, it's, it's been, been around, around a, for long a long time. time. And, and let's not forget that they're on the forefront of science oh, absolutely. as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah. um, I worked, I worked in the actual lab mm-hmm. that, I mean, it wasn't decked out the same that, um, that Salk created the polio vaccine. Yeah. absolutely. Oh, yeah, the yeah. room, the yeah. very room. It's a little bit different when yeah, I was yeah. there, I'm <laughs> sure. But, uh, oh, man, but to it was be the very part the building. of that mm-hmm. sort of history. I mean, you, you were not there when the vaccine, but but clearly. just being in the lab, man. Yeah, it, oh, that's it, awesome. I, it looked a little bit different than the pictures. Oh yeah, no, I can imagine <laughs> renovations happened. Yeah, but, but it was it was kind of surreal and uh, exciting at the same time. But so so I was at the Graduate School of Public Health down at the University of Pittsburgh, where I did my PhD work in malaria. So malaria, which we're not talking about too much today, is. No, no. Love Ma- that um, oh, I know Love you do. Bite. Major, major worldwide parasite and uh, unfortunately a killer of children, hmm. uh, mainly. So I, I did a lot of work on that. We set up a field site in uh, rural Kenya. Oh, wow. Uh, got to visit very, very, um, very different way of life, very mm-hmm. different way of medicine. So, yeah, oh, absolutely. Uh, when, uh, when I graduated, I had a few options, including the CDC, but, you know, I really fell in love with teaching and that's, that's mainly what we do here at LECOM. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's close to home and, and, you know, discussion with my family and uh, the focus on the teaching really drew me in. And I can't tell you how happy I've been. Uh, I'm able to continue doing research, which I think is what we're discussing today. So your main focus, uh, your main research focus, you do you do a lot of things, but your main research focus, if I understand correctly, is Lyme disease and, mm-hmm. and ticks that cause Lyme disease. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. That's one of the major projects in the lab. We have we have several, but um, um, I'd say 50% of our lab work um, is looking at vector-borne diseases in the area, specifically ticks. So what is Lyme? What is Lyme disease? Who wants to uh, do the honors on that? How about the expert? Okay. <laughs> so Lyme, Lyme disease was discovered in um, in 1975 in Lyme, Connecticut. Uh, and it was... Um, discovered in a bunch of kids that had arthritis. And that was very interesting because when I think of arthritis, I think of older individuals, yeah, including right. myself. Um, you're not, you're not that old. Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Let's not date ourselves. <laughs> I like um, how you said that and you had a little bit of a chuckle just, at the end. Just, there. A, just a bit. bit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, it, and it was, it was interesting because before that time there weren't uh, many, many tick-borne illnesses, um, identified and, uh, it, it spread very quickly throughout uh, New England area and, and now down into Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and um, pretty much ticks are taking over the world. But uh, the the initial symptoms are, are different than what was described by uh, by the initial physician who discovered it, and that is um, – is, is the rash, and I think most most people in science, or at least in medicine, are familiar now with the bullseye rash or or target lesion of of, of Lyme disease. So clinically, we're looking at, at a rash and oh, flu-like symptoms where you got aches and pains mm-hmm. and joints and muscles uh, for for a few days to a week or more. And that rash, that's uh, erythema migrants. Yeah, erythema right? migrants. Yeah, so that's okay. so erythema migrants is, is the bullseye rash. It, it, you know, it looks exactly like you describe a target, you know. So right. it's very, very uh, unique. And in fact, it's its presence indicates Lyme disease. But it doesn't happen in 100% of cases. Oh, no, no. And that's so Which is important. a huge common misconception, right? It is a misconception, and it's also extremely important because there's multiple stages to Lyme disease. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, about 70 to 80% of people are estimated to have the rash. And okay. it could be that people don't get the rash, or perhaps the tick bites you in a, some area that you, that you, you, that don't you, see. you didn't see. And yeah. so... Um, 
Uh, some people have more than one rash. Interestingly, uh, I know somebody who works here who recently had Lyme disease and and she had a, an initial target lesion, but had multiple lesions on her body. So, oh, wow. so there, there's different presentations of of early Lyme disease, but it always includes a rash. Um, and, and flu-like symptoms are only would include those. I guess, um, you know, I, I look at these symptoms and these characteristics and I see how easily this could be confused for, you know, a person who doesn't know all of the symptoms associated with Lyme disease. I mean, without that skin rash, that bullseye, this could be you think it's a flu or something Anything. and yeah. leave it undiagnosed, you know, untreated. And then you have that progression and, you know, God knows what happens. And, then. Yeah. And we've had we've had patients present with that as well. It's usually misdiagnosed because you wouldn't think of Lyme disease at the top of your list unless, unless you were at risk for it. Yeah. Whereas the flu is much more common. Mm -hmm. So absolutely. In terms of like the progression of these symptoms and kind of, uh, thinking about, you know, the, um, uh, treatment timeline. How kind of long does a typical patient have, or what's the estimated time for symptoms for successful treatment? Uh, for successful treatment? Yes. Week, maybe. Okay. I mean, you need, by the time they get diagnosed, it's probably been a few days, unless they get the rash. Okay. I mean, a lot of people will get the rash and, and, um, minor flu-like symptoms. But once you initiate treatment, it, you should feel better within a few days. And um, complete eradication takes typically two to three weeks of antibiotics. Okay. Yeah. Um, what's important to, to note, though, is people that where treatment may not work or, or weren't treated can go on to have very major uh, secondary manifestations. So uh, this is where the heart's involved and the and the brain's involved. You can have um, neuroborreliosis with meningitis. You can have uh, AV node block and heart failure. Jeez. Um, facial palsies where you look like uh, one side of your face is para uh, paralyzed or droopy. Um, you can uh, patients typically present, though, with the arthritis like was discovered uh, reported in the original um, case study in, in Connecticut arthritis occurs um, in in a majority of patients with late stage arthritis uh, with Lyme disease I see now e even with late stage you can you can still treat with antibiotics to get rid of the bacteria you may not necessarily and you know correct me if I'm mistaken you may not necessarily get rid of some of the lingering symptoms but you can get rid of the bacteria is that correct yes yeah, so so if, if the bacteria is present and I say if and uh, we can get into that but uh, if the bacteria is present you can you can eradicate it with the antibiotics it just it's a little bit harder to do is is it because it localizes to different tissues or is it uh, a sort of antibiotic penetrance what's the issue with treating oh, later I, with antibiotics yeah i think both both of those but those go hand in hand uh, okay. getting the antibody so the the bacteria initially is is in the local um, site a local site of inoculation but once it hits the bloodstream it goes everywhere and right. especially I would imagine if it kind of makes its way to the nervous system even the central nervous system right it's harder then it's harder to treat mm -hmm. and probably a much more intense antibiotic regimen sure and, and we do we, we we switch it over to ceftriac some some more potent um, penicillin like antibiotic okay so the, the first antibiotic choice is doxycycline. Is that the most commonly given one? Yes, absolutely. Uh, doxycycline is 99.9% .9 effective. In fact, probably the only reason it wouldn't be effective is if it's not taken at the optimal dose. Okay. Um, typically, we, we give amoxicillin historically to kids, but that's been updated recently. The, the CDC has uh, approved, uh, FDA has approved, the use of doxycycline in children for oh, wow. Lyme disease because of the possibility of of um, amoxicillin's ineffectiveness leading to some of these major complications we talked about. Gotcha. So in, in terms of, I guess, I guess switching more a bit to the diagnosis timeline, um, what are some of the methods used in terms of diagnosing and 100% determining that somebody tests positive for Lyme disease? So that would be kind of like uh, an ELISA, maybe in a Western blood test. So, right? yeah. So the best diagnosis is the rash. If it's mm -hmm. present, you're, you're good to go. Mm -hmm. um, but in patients that have a high suspicion of, of possible early or late stage Lyme disease, um, historically, and, and what, what I would tell anybody right now, it's still antibody tests. We, we look for your antibodies. And so we'll run an ELISA followed by a Western blot. Um, just last month, in fact, July 
the end of July, so July 29th, the um, CDC has approved the use of two ELISAs instead of a ELISA and Western blot. So two different ELISAs or, or EIAs to um, to determine positivity for Lyme disease. Cool. And uh, ELISA, just for our listeners, ELISA is simply, in this case, detecting uh, antibodies against the bacteria. So you get infected with a pathogen, your body's immune response kicks in, and eventually you're going to make antibodies against the bacteria. And those antibodies can be detected right. using the ELISA test. In, in serum, which mm-hmm. is the you know non-blood component of blood, non-cellular component. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, one thing we didn't mention... Um, how does one identify, uh, let's say you have a tick, right? And it's it's borrowed into your skin. And let's say it's been there for a few hours or something like that. Uh, let's talk about, so how long does a tick need to be there for you to get the bacteria or for it to transmit the bacteria? Maybe we can talk a little bit about how to identify a deer tick, something like that. Sure. You've got ticks Here, with you. I brought ticks with me. Ah, fun so, times. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, so, so check those out. Uh, what, what you have in front of you... Um, Maybe you can describe them for the the listeners as um, a couple adult ticks. Um, one has a fly in it. I don't know how that got there, so just ignore the fly. I see. <laughs> and and um, the little one, one of the little ones is a nymph tick. So we really should start with ticks because my emphasis of research and what I, I focus on is the transmission and um, identification of tick-borne illnesses. And so uh, this is solely a, a, a tick transmitted disease. And so these little black legged ticks, formerly known as deer ticks, and I'm fine uh, with that name. Uh, they, uh, oh, they're just, they're all over the place here in Erie and, and the Northeast US now. Uh, they have different life stages real quick. And uh, there's the, the larval stage, which is hatched from an egg. Non-infectious, can't give you Lyme disease. Then you have the nymph stage, which is what I like in the teenagers, and then the adults. The adult females take uh, – at each stage, they take a blood meal. So they're going to burrow into your skin. They're going to um, eat your blood and possibly in, in inject the bacteria. And they need that blood meal to move on to the next developmental stage. They is that do. Correct? They do. Yeah. So without that, um, they will um, they will not be able to, um, to, to grow and to, to mature. The uh, – the blood meal, uh, when they're looking for a blood meal, we call that questing. And that's what we look for is questing ticks. They're looking actively for a blood meal. Mm-hmm. They uh, typically hang on to vegetation. And then when a, when an animal walks by, they, they grab a hold of the fur and then they can uh, burrow into the skin. The typical animals that you need are mice and deer. And, and so the, the nymph ticks, the teenagers feed on mice and the adults feed on deer. Now, that's that's the... The, the normal life cycle, but these things can also feed on humans. Mm-hmm. So are, are, are we accidental hosts, you think? I think so. And yeah. I, you know, that's that's hard to say. So an accidental host, you know, is typically a host that that um, shouldn't get the disease but has symptoms maybe thereof. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we aren't part of the, the sylvatic cycle, at least, between the tick, the, the deer, and the, the mouse. But I don't think ticks care. Yeah, and, and they for, found ticks on everything. Yeah, wherever yeah. there's yeah, blood or a meal, like that's where the, that's where it wants to be. Yeah, I, I've heard about ticks on birds. Yeah, yeah. right. Ticks on just uh, anything. Coyotes they were looking at recently. So big concern for you know dog owners too. Dog I mean, owners should be very yeah concerned yeah. because uh, dogs are close to the ground. They're running around mm-hmm. and ticks don't care. I've had them on my dogs plenty of times. Yeah, yeah. I bet. Now for our listeners, just just a sylvatic cycle means a cycle for a parasite that involves animals in the wild. Correct. What would yeah. you say that's a fair that, definition? Yeah, that's a fair okay. definition. Uh, bacteria as well. Um, so to your question, Delbert, finally. So once a, once a tick, a nymph or an adult tick, um, once they've taken a blood meal from uh, an animal, they could pick up Lyme disease. And the bacteria uh, does – it does stay in the tick, typically in the gut. Once that tick carries the bacteria, when it, when it actually feeds on a human – uh, or, or another animal, uh, once it bites, then the bacteria starts to migrate towards the salivary glands. Mm-hmm. Now, the salivary glands contain many, many proteins made by the tick in order to a pharmacopoeia yeah, of, it, it yeah, really is looking. right they uh they have um different compounds to anesthetize right. the skin so you don't know it's there you don't know it's there it's a perfect delivery I've, mechanism yeah yeah I've, I've been bitten by ticks before i didn't even know until i saw it or brushed right. against it right um so in the local area you, you don't know it it, it 
they're pretty out, crafty, yeah. yeah pretty crafty. Anti-clotting factors as well. But here's the thing. The, initially, they're not infectious. Mm-hmm. So even within a couple um, a couple hours of having been uh, bitten by a tick and having it embedded in your skin – you're not you're not becoming infected. Yeah. It takes some time for the bacteria. They actually turn on different proteins. Um, so we're learning a lot about that. They they turn on outer proteins that that take them from the uh, mid gut or the gut area mm-hmm. of the of the tick into the salivary gland, so they they can become transmitted. Yeah. So we usually say about a day. So if you were outside and then you find the tick on you 24 hours later, well now you might be at risk of infection. So I mean, one 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 thing that uh, in terms of prevention that the CDC recommends that, and I'm sure we recommend as well. If you're out in the woods, you're hiking, you're hunting, whatever. When you get back home, do a tick check, check yourself. Do a tick yeah. check. Yeah, I mean, the best thing you can do is have a friend. Yeah, right. Because you can't. No, always, that's you always can't look see at everything. Somebody you trust. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, you can't I, see yeah. every spot of your body. Um, I remember back when we were working uh, at Teal, and we did um, a summer. Uh, salamander collecting trip and I took three undergrads with me went to a site that I had used since I was in graduate school and never had an issue with ticks and this one summer uh, we're driving back up the highway up what 79 going back to Teal and one of the students looks at the student in the front seat and goes you got a tick on your neck. And so we all stop at a rest stop. Everybody goes, checks themselves. I think one student had maybe two ticks to pull out. One had another kind of in the back of her neck. And as I'm driving home that day, I'm thinking, Oh, I got, got away scot-free. Everything's okay. And by happenstance, I look down probably at my phone, you know, on my lap and I see this little black spot in my thigh. And I did the one thing that you probably shouldn't do. I immediately looked, scratched a bit and then pulled it out. And it's a, it's a tick. And as soon as I got home back to my, you know, dingy little apartment, uh, you know, the dog tried to run up to me. I shoot him away, uh, stripped clean, went and I wasn't living with my fiance at that point. So I just had to check, like take pictures of myself. I mean, kind of weird, but no, kind of weird. Yeah, kind of maybe a little the neighbors weird. would have they'd seen it. They would have <laughs> yeah. going on. I probably would have but, had um, some explaining to well, do. Spe- speaking of tick removal, what's a proper way of removing mm-hmm. tick? So, you know, there's many uh, folklore out there. Don't listen to it. Um, the CDC recommends uh, using tweezers. Uh, you can actually buy tick removal devices now that are good. Um, I've seen some that look like a little uh, a little spoon with a divot in it uh-huh. that goes underneath the tick's uh-huh. uh, head, and and you pull up, so it gives you some leverage. Um, I've removed a lot of ticks. For some reason, my my younger son is a tick magnet. Oh. We go out fishing. I catch a fish. He catches a tick. It's just That's the way it goes. An- Andrew, right? It's Andrew, yeah. 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 So in- Andrew Andrew just gets the ticks all the time. And um, fortunately, they're easy to see. Mm-hmm. But I always always check them out after you've been in the woods because of, of that reason. Yeah. Um, tweezers work just fine. You want to make sure you get underneath the tick's head and slowly pull up. Don't yank it out because you want to remove the head. You mm-hmm. will know if, if you didn't. You can see it. You can see the mouth parts are absent. Um, In that case, you'd want to see a physician and and possibly treat it. But if you remove the whole thing within a couple hours, uh, again, no concern. I've I've removed plenty of ticks for myself and my sons, and I I had no concerns about calling the the, the physician. Now, the last thing you want to do is squeeze the body of the tick. Oh, yeah. So so back to that. Importantly, don't don't cover the tick with soap or I've heard nail polish removed. Because you can make it puke. Oh, yeah. So that's the thing. So. So, um, you know, it will it will remove itself from your body. So so at that, it looks like it worked, but it actually makes them more infectious. So the bacteria is more likely to be transmitted in the saliva if you try to burn it off mm-hmm. or if you try to. They have cryo devices now where you can freeze the tick. It does yeah. the same thing. Yes, the tick will remove itself from your body, but it also gave you the disease. And that's that's what's more important is you yeah. don't want right. to get some of these tick-borne infections. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Slow, slow pull uh, from grabbing the mouth parts, pulling it out, that, that should do without transmission of anything. And that's the same thing too. And again, kind of looking at it from the animal perspective, because I know treatment of Lyme disease in dogs and tick removal and even, you know, tick preventative measures, that's a huge vet concern and even like a vet business, right? Selling these medications and these chewables that prevent the dog from, that'll kill the tick, hopefully, but preventing the dog from getting Lyme disease, um, really making sure 
on any animals you have that they're free of ticks. I guess maybe like a little, I, I think I uh, got one out of my dog a few years ago and there was a tiny little bump. He has black fur. So incredibly hard. To, oh, wow. That'd yeah. Be, that, yes. That's really terrible. But, you know, just petting him one day, I noticed a little bump. You know, went in a bit, looked and saw oh, there looks to be, you know, the body of a tick in there. And uh, that's that's a huge concern, too, especially those who have animals. So that, that's a really important point, too, is the size of these things. They're so mm-hmm. they're so small. I showed them to you. Um, and, especially and the nymph stage. Well, the mm-hmm. nymph. Well, the nymph is that's why we see most of the cases in the summer, the human mm-hmm. cases. Nymphs can look like a pimple. Yeah. You wouldn't even know. Um, the adults, they're a little bit larger. They're easier to spot once they've, they've become engorged. So as the ticks feeds with blood, they, they expand. Mm-hmm. The nymphs really don't get too big, but the females do before they lay eggs. Um, they get to about the size of a, of a raisin. And so uh, I have a... I have the adults a, the adults, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. They get to the size of a raisin, and um, you're not going to see them initially. So that's yeah. how I have a black lab, and I have to do that because when mm-hmm. she's out in the woods, they can become attached. Um, we use uh, Sorrento collars, or oh, we yeah. use Avantix. They work very well. Okay, um, the tick may attach, but it'll die before it can transmit yeah. anything. Plus, there's a vaccine um, for, for, for animals. For animals oh, now. That's important because we would just mentioned prevention. Um, back in the 90s, there was a vaccine for Lyme disease. There okay. was. There was. And what, um, was it Lyme Vax? What, what was it was Lyme, Lyme, Lyme Rix. Lyme Rix. Lyme Rix. Um, it was pulled. It was pulled from the market due for several reasons. It, it wasn't 100% effective. Um, a lot of kids came down with side effects, including arthritis, which is oh wow, you know one of the secondary manifestations. And so there were a lot of lawsuits um, threatened, and um, so it was pulled. But uh, I was just reading last week that there is a company that's looking into uh, manufacturing, and they're pretty close to having FDA approval for a new vaccine. Oh, cool. oh that'll be great. Yeah. So we'll see. The, the The concern is that it may induce autoimmunity. That's what yeah. kind of happened before. So you make antibodies directed against your own tissues because our our proteins are kind of similar to some of these these Lyme disease proteins. Yeah. So that that actually I'm 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 glad you mentioned that because that brings me to one of the things that I hope we can talk about, which is post treatment Lyme disease syndrome. Yeah. Even in people that uh, have had a successful uh, cure from Lyme disease using you know a, a course of antibiotics. Uh, two to four weeks of, say, oral antibiotics, um, and you're cured from the bacteria and initial symptoms of Lyme disease, uh, some people have what's called uh, PTLDS, which is post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, which is sort of similar to an autoimmune disease, right? That's a thought, yeah. yeah. So uh, let's say there's a lot of debate mm-hmm. out in, in the community, uh, the research community, and the scientific, the medical, and of course, in the layperson who has Lyme disease. And one one of the big debatable areas is it, it, it's clear that these patients have symptoms. Yeah. Um, for exactly what you said, Delbert, they've been treated, but there's no evidence of the bacteria being present. And these symptoms, and, not to cut you off, Chris, yeah, sure. but these symptoms include kind of, uh, pain, fatigue, um, kind yeah, of right. thought process disruption, sure. you know, things like that. Difficulty concentrating yeah, or thinking yeah, maybe. Yeah, drowsy. Okay. Yeah. Um, and arthritis okay. is the major one, just like uh, when, 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 you, when you do see a patient with evidence of the bacteria in the yeah. blood. And so there was always that. Uh, for a group of people that we thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe you're just having some sequelae in your head. But mm-hmm. it, it's clear that there's a group of people that, that still have symptoms. And so we think it's an autoimmune disease, like like we just mentioned, um, similar to something like Guillain-Barre after the flu or, yeah. or you know, um, rheumatic, rheumatic fever after, yeah, after, after strep, strep throat. Yeah, yeah. Or Reiter's syndrome after chlamydia. Mm-hmm. Sure, so it's, it's, not, it's not a unique. It's not, it's a, not it's unique. unique. It's not unique. Yeah. But there, we, we haven't been able to detect what, what that auto antigen or auto antibody is. Yeah. So so there's a lot of debate. Um, clearly, there's people having symptoms. So mm-hmm. that that's not debatable. What is doing it? Um, I would agree that it's got to be an, an auto antibody. It's just so it's such an inflammatory disease. It brings in a lot of immune cells. And yeah. and, and you're going to see a, a, a just like Campylobacter, you see a big inflammatory response. Mm-hmm. You see changing of antigens. It's very easy to get antigenic variation and, and molecular mimicry there. Yeah, and that's what I was going to mention, because some some pathogens uh, 
are so similar that molecular mimicry right yeah. they, they have antigens that are so similar to yours that's how they hide from the immune system and then yeah. all of a sudden you make an antibody against them and then against you yeah basically against yourself and that's that's where we get things like rheumatic heart disease right. and the i think the really unfortunate thing for these patients that have uh, ptlds is the fact that i mean treatment is a little more difficult right i mean how do you tailor your treatment if you don't know exactly what's causing the this condition yeah. right yeah i i 100% agree if if there's no presence of the bacteria you sure can't use antibiotics and yeah. so you're you're left with the possibility of steroids but you know it it also comes down to diagnostic techniques a lot of these patients either may may not have had the rash or you know just didn't get diagnosed with primary acute Lyme disease and mm-hmm. so it begs the question of whether or not if, if there really is antigenic variation in these bacteria it's my thought that if if you have antigenic variation you're going to have variable antibodies and yet what what is the test that we use to detect Lyme disease yep antibody based yeah. tests right and so if if you're not if if you're not or if you have a different strain of bacteria perhaps the antibodies you're making aren't going to be detectable yeah. by the standard test. So there's other diagnostic techniques. PCR is one. Mm-hmm. It's not approved right now by the CDC as part of the diagnostic techniques. But mm-hmm. but that's usually what we do in our lab to detect whether or not a tick carries Lyme diseases. We'll, we'll detect the bacteria by... PCR. So is that standard, that standard PCR or more quantitative, like real time no, PCR? No, it's, it's just standard, standard conventional okay. PCR. I didn't know. Um, it was maybe both. cute. You yeah. can do both. Sure. We're not interested in how much is there. We're, it's just mm-hmm. a yes or no in the tick. Right. right. So if it's present, we're happy to say yeah. it's positive for these tick-borne infections. Gotcha. And I guess that's another thing you did bring up too, especially for the general public, is the fact that you know you can't just immediately resort to antibiotic treatment for this condition because chronic overuse, long-term antibiotic treatment can end up leading to pretty serious complications, right? With Com- PTLDS, you mean? Um, with or just anything in, in, in general. Yeah. I, I mean, you're looking yeah. at antibiotic resistance. We've already, you know... We've already shot our wad here. We, we, we've yeah, used them. We've overused them. We use them in animals. I mean, I'm a strong proponent of of um, of antibiotic uh, resistance yeah. measures. And, you know, and 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 stewardship. Yeah, yeah. Of so course, be very careful here. Now, before we ask you a little bit about your research sure. here, uh, this was a great introduction uh, or a great discussion. Mm-hmm. You you had, uh, Fauna, if you sort of... Oh, uh, yeah, kind of like an anecdotal story um, from uh, somebody uh, in my family who recently kind of went through a little bit of a um, Lyme disease scare. And not necessarily scare, I mean, was diagnosed with Lyme disease. And she... Uh, was one of the fortunate patients who did exhibit the red bullseye rash. And um, she went to the doctor with complaints of the, and this was the only symptom, so she didn't really have flu-like symptoms, right? But she had that red bullseye rash, went to the doctor. That was her only symptom, you said? That was the only symptom. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So again, we're seeing the disparity in symptoms here. Some people mm-hmm. have, you know, the more um, headache, fatigue uh, with the rash. Some people don't have have the rash, right? She only exhibited the symptom of the rash. Um, the doctor did a further test, suspected Lyme disease, and also anecdotally from the doctor said that this doctor had been seeing some pretty strange rashes from people in the area. It seemed to be increasing in frequency and sent the, took some blood work. Blood work came back positive for Lyme disease, so what um, the ELISA and other antibody-based tests. And luckily enough, you know, no evidence of the PTLDS. She was put on Dr. Cyclone for 14 days, rash went away, uh, symptom free. So for okay. the most part, um, I think some of the follow-up measures were uh, the doctor said to have the blood retested after taking the antibiotics. Um, that was one doctor's opinion, but she then went to see her primary care physician who then said that the blood didn't need to be retested and that she should be fine. So I guess that leads to my question for all of us to discuss or the expert here, Dr. Keller, um, should somebody who just had this Lyme disease scare, got treated for it, should they have their blood retested, you know, certain times to make sure that there's no kind of recurrence or are they generally okay after this 
14 day treatment with the antibiotic? My opinion? Mm -hmm. They're fine. Okay. Um, it's a drain on resources to go and do that again. True. Unless you're presenting with any symptoms, there's no, no reason to go get tested. And if you're presenting with with no symptoms, right, that's that's yeah, an evidence that you're you're healed. Um, I think more importantly is what if you get bit by a tick and you remove it within a couple hours? Should you be given antibiotics? And that's mm -hmm. that's something that that's been discussed and, and bandered about. Um, I don't think so. Okay. I, I, I'm evidence of that. My kids, no reason to treat unless you have symptoms. Yeah. Um, there's no evidence that that uh, 14 day course of doxycycline is going to prevent right. anything. Mm -hmm. Now, now the thing about black ticks is, you know, mo or you know, commonly known as black legged ticks, deer ticks, whatever, mm -hmm. right? Uh, is most of us think of Lyme disease, right? But the uh, they can transmit other things, right? They can transmit anaplasmosis. They can transmit Babesia. Now, thankfully, doxy works against anaplasmosis as well, but not Babesia, right? No, not at all. So if you are super unlucky and you have a tick that, let's say, transmitted Lyme plus Babesia, uh, then you may, need, uh, you may need a different antibiotic for that. And, and that's something we train our students to think about. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, maybe a quick discussion after this is a little bit about you know how the cases have increased. But if you don't, if you're not aware that Babesia is a co-infection of Lyme disease, why in the world would you think about treating it? Yeah. And so we've had patients that have come back after they've taken their doxycycline and they're still sick. The rash is gone, but they have flu-like symptoms, maybe uh, weakness, mm -hmm. anemia, mm -hmm. hematuria, and it's all because they've got a, a parasite in their red blood cells, which is really cool. Yeah, which is like but, yeah, Babesia is, has well, a cool life cycle. So it's cool for you know, the we, physician or the researcher. <laughs> yeah, maybe is, not so cool for the patient. <laughs> not so cool for the patient. Um, that's what really got me started in this, actually, is Babesia. Mm -hmm. um, and that's that's a that's a big risk. Now, fortunately, Babesia is a lot less prevalent, mm -hmm. at least in our area. In, right. in areas of New England, it can get up to 10 to 20 percent. Oh, wow. That's Babesia. significant. Uh -huh. uh, at least in, in, uh, in donors. Right. 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 We, right. We've looked at yeah, antibodies. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, the ticks, yeah, they carry it at a much higher rate. Here, we're about 1 percent. I think we found it in one, one and a half percent of the ticks. Okay, not terribly significant, but no, but you know, still risk. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember my, <laughs> I'm trying to remember my life cycles here, right? But Babesia involves cattle, right? Like, is that a main? So uh, you're thinking host, of Babesia, um, Babesia uh, bovis. There's, there's one there. Okay. okay. Babesia microti, which is interesting, is um, it's cycles between mice and. And, and deer even, but mice yeah. mainly. Mice mainly. And so the white-footed mouse is the major reservoir for Lyme disease, for Borrelia, for Borrelia burgdorferi, the cause of age of Lyme disease for um, for the nymph tick, at least. Mm -hmm. It's also where you get Babesia. Okay. And so we have that in the area. And I, you know, I, I don't think it's just the white-footed mouse. I think a lot of these mammals are carrying Lyme disease yeah. and, and Babesia. But um, the fact that, that we have that here promotes... I mean, if it's the same reservoir and the same vector, right? It, it promotes the transmission of both diseases together. And yeah. you uh, have you observed that in kind of your research and your collections and observations in the nearby yeah. area? You know, both of these being transmitted. Yeah, so, uh, so we had. So we, as far as I know, I've not seen a case of Babesia diagnosed here, Pittsburgh mainly. Mm -hmm. My guess is it probably goes misdiagnosed, and not not because of inappropriate techniques or training, but because it's a zebra. I mean, if you only have one out of 100,000 patients with it, you're probably not thinking about it. Yeah. Um, when with one of our master's students looked at um, Babesia as, as her project, um, she's now a medical student at Marshall University. Mm. She uh, looked at Babesia and, and, and found evidence of it in the text. So we do know it's, it's there. It, it seems to be more. Uh, more prevalent as a co-carrier uh, with mm -hmm. with Borrelia, but we all uh, we also found ticks that carry it alone. So it's possible it Babesia without Borrelia, but it's more likely to get it as a co-infection. Um, so we've got about uh, 15 minutes here. So maybe uh, we can talk about your research, right? I mean, you, you, you've hinted at it a lot, right? Yes. You, you've <laughs> it's hard not to. <laughs> it it is, absolutely. So maybe we can use these uh, 15 minutes uh, unless there's anything to add about Lyme or Lyme disease treatment, things like that. 
I think we covered it pretty well. Honestly, I'm very interested and I'm sure a lot of our listeners, even students in various levels here at LECOM, I think they'd be interested to know, um, Dr. Keller, what you're doing with your research, what some of your current projects are in the lab here and any other useful research updates on your end. Sure. Um, so, and, you know, open-ended, whatever you want sure. to talk about. Well, let me let me start by saying all of my current work is in a collaboration with Dr. Cardi, uh, who also is is a microbiologist here on campus. So Which we, we do, tried to get to uh, be a host with us well, today. I think she has a committee meeting she of some ha- sort. She and, does, and we only have three microphones. Well, <laughs> so that make it a little tough. We, uh, we would have <laughs> We'll have to, to start investing. <laughs> I think so. We can start having group debates and group Well, we can have right. us to uh, four microphones on this board. So there you go. Well, there you go. Um, so Dr. Dr. Cardi is um, you know, the director of the master's program here and, and the assistant director of PBL. Mm-hmm. But we, we do all our research together. We've had a multitude. If you look behind you, you'll see the, the student theses there. We've had a multitude of, of MBS uh, master's students through our lab, as well as medical students. And so uh, when I joined the faculty here, you know, I came up with a background in malaria and I just found Babesia so fascinating. I'd never seen a tick, even growing up near Erie, never seen a tick. Oh, wow. Never had a tick on me. Um, and, and I, you know, I'd heard that there's problems with ticks. So I went looking for ticks out of Presque Isle. Um, for those of you who don't know, Presque Isle has a very high uh, prevalence of ticks yeah. uh, historically. And Lyme positive ticks. And Lyme positive ticks. I'll, I'll mention that in a second. So when I first started here, I went out in uh, August about, about this time looking for ticks. And I kept finding spiders and what I thought were ticks because <laughs> I'd never seen one. Um, I finally found some larval ticks and mm-hmm. I, you got to have really good eyesight for that. Um, the, the adult ticks uh, are out in force in late October, usually um, at any time it's warm, like above 40 degrees. And so the first year we just did molecular epidemiology. We we tracked the ticks. I could find you 200 ticks in an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. These are ticks lo- actively looking to feed. And so the first thing we did was uh, use conventional PCR to determine what was the the current uh, carriage rate. And it was at 55 percent. So if if you got bit by a tick and you didn't uh, remove it, then you were more likely than not to contract uh, Lyme disease. Then we moved on to look at dog ticks and um, if they can transmit it. So there's more than one type of tick. Um, Our lab now looks at dog ticks, which can transmit diseases like Rocky Mountain spotted fever caused by uh, rickettsial organisms. That's scary enough. Um, and, And so we've collected a few of those. Uh, no evidence yet that they can transmit uh, Borrelia, but it mm-hmm. looks like they may have it. Um, and then we, we've we collected now Lone Star ticks, which can transmit Ehrlichia. Mm-hmm. And now we're looking for groundhog ticks. So there's there's wow. a yeah, ton of ticks out there. But um, the one tick that you will find if you look for it at Prescott is the black-legged tick. That's really interesting. I have a, you know, next yeah. time I'm there, even just for a run, uh, I'd like to go off the beaten path, if you will, and I'm thinking I'm I might just avoid yeah. the whole area altogether. Uh, <laughs> no more paddle boarding but it's so beautiful. and kayaking it's there. So I go kayaking there. there on weekends. Yeah. Um, you don't even need to go off the beaten path, Chris. You don't have to. It's it's just it, they're rampant out mm. there. Um, different. We we've debated why we've never really come up with a, a conclusion as to you know perhaps there you know there's no use of pesticides. There's yeah. sandy. There's, there's yeah. lots of animals present. We, we people movement. There's a lot. Three, four million people visit. Oh, Prescott yeah, that's every year. Yeah. four million visitors a year. So it's that. That's another reason that that we look there. You find the ticks, but you, you also have the people coming from yeah. all over. So in general, and kind of a little sidebar, um, the overall increased prevalence of ticks. There are a few factors that could potentially be causing mm. an increase in these numbers and therefore possible increase in diagnoses of Lyme disease. Um, what are maybe some of the factors that might be leading to, I guess, uh, population booms of these different ticks? Uh, I would imagine that urbanization maybe plays a little bit of a role. Uh, I don't know if climate change necessarily, that would probably be the one that a lot of people want to blame on, but I'm not sure if there's a lot of data to support that. Yeah, I don't I don't know about that. Um, 
I mean, the it, it, the fact is the ticks are out anytime it's, you know, like 40 degrees or more and it's dry. Mm-hmm. They're out probably when it's wet. We just can't find them. Because, yeah. um, our, our method involves flagging. And if it gets wet, forget it. But um, sure, the warmer it gets. So there's probably a linkage there. I, I think that's probably minimal. Yeah. Um, because they, they have to still be able to lay eggs and have food sources. And if they don't have food sources, you're not going to have ticks. And so I think more small mammals mm-hmm. means more ticks. One year they, they thought there'd be a huge tick explosion because there was a big nut harvest. And so all of them, huh. the mice, that didn't happen. <laughs> at least not here. Yeah. Um, that didn't correlate with a huge tick explosion. There were still the same number of ticks. Okay. Maybe we're saturated. I don't know. Yeah. Um, now, with the urbanization, I think that would actually decrease the number of ticks because you're getting rid of the small mammals. Yeah. But that's clearly going to increase the impact of Lyme disease on humans. On people, yeah. And mm-hmm. so that's why we're seeing more Lyme disease cases is because people are, are encroaching on the animal habitats in, in the more suburban areas of cities. Mm-hmm. Philadelphia is one of the hardest hit cities in this country. For wow. Lyme disease, suburban Philadelphia. Oh, oh wow. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Wow. Well, Pennsylvania has the most cases in any state. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about 30,000 ish cases, right? Reported to the CDC every year. Every year. Not, not from Pennsylvania nationwide. No, that's nationwide, nationwide. But Pennsylvania makes up the majority. We only have about 100 cases here reported. Yeah. But I do say reported. It's a mandated reported disease. But the CDC estimates we're at the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. We're probably looking at 300,000 plus cases a year. Wow. And, and they're either going underdiagnosed or undiagnosed. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it's given everything deal. that goes into it, the differing symptoms, I mean, the difficulty yeah. lies in, you know, actually getting to the doctor to get diagnosed, number one. And then number two, the doctor being able to diagnose it, hopefully with that, you know, rash, the bullseye. Sure. And if you well, go ahead. Uh, well, I mean, uh, part of the other thing is sometimes the doctor may order the wrong test or not, you know, like an, a yeah. personal story. You know, I, I had a tick last year, uh, you know, even though I did a tick check after I was in the woods and I didn't find any ticks uh, 24 hours later. Uh, and, you know, it could have been very small, which is why I didn't see it. 24 hours later, I was showering and then I feel it in the shower, right? Like a little mm-hmm. pimple. I was like, well, I, I don't think I have a pimple there. Right. Mm-hmm. So I checked and it was a tick. I removed it. Took it to the lab, incidentally, identified as a deer tick, and then went to the doctor. I was like, okay, we've got a deer tick, you know, need antibiotics, whatever. And she's like, oh, we need to send it to the lab for, you know, uh, identification purposes. And I thought that the doctor was going to send it in to get it tested whether it has Lyme or not. And what ended up happening is the doctor sent it in. And then a day later, they called me like, oh, yeah, it's a deer tick. We're going to put you on antibiotics. I was like... I already told you it was a deer tick, but I thought that you were going to do a PCR test to see or any other test the proper to see follow-up the, test, yeah. you know, whether it has Lyme or not. And I called the company that does the diagnostics and they still had the tick in the fridge. And I said, well, do you mind testing it for uh, Lyme? I'll pay for it. Right. They're like, no, no, your doctor has to order that. So that never happened, right? And I just got on the antibiotics for yeah. uh, just to be on the safe side. I got on the antibiotics. Yeah, I think that's perpetuating a little bit of possible resistance, not from not, not, not from not, Borrelia, yeah. but maybe from something else. But I mean, it brings up a good point because there's companies that that, that are predator companies. I feel that they that will test your tick, but they'll charge you three hundred bucks to do yeah. it. Oh yeah, I was. I, I had, we we, it was we can do it for dollars. You yeah, know, yeah but, it was expensive. So that's that's one thing we do offer. We we do you know examine ticks that are sent into us for whether or not they carry Lyme disease for you know minimal. Fee, not three hundred dollars, but um, we. That's great. I actually it, did yeah. not know that. So, yeah. uh, for our listeners out there, so what's do they do they contact you or what, what's the protocol there? Um, we don't have that set up yet, but we just started opening up the lab for that. Um, I've always done it by word of mouth. Sure. <laughs> okay. Um, depends on how many words of mouth we get. You yeah. Know, I, um, we, we've only done handfuls for people that have been interested, mainly other faculty, staff, and then sure. some students. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah, just a small. But yeah, hey, if side you're business, and, yeah, uh, you cool. have a tick that that you, you feel you want to identify, uh, get in touch with Doctor Keller. Stort and ethanol, or else it's gonna gonna go. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I just want to finish up with the research that we do. Uh, we we look for tick-borne pathogens, and we're continuing that. So we're always looking for good master's students. We're looking for good medical students, and uh, to join our our lab to do. Um, mainly molecular epidemiology. We're currently looking for, uh, we're going to start looking for Powassan virus, which is uh, transmitted by the same tick. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a case in New York and it's, uh, 
It causes fatal encephalitis, so that's a big deal. We're also looking for Rocky Mountain spotted fever currently and, and whether or not it's it's in the area. So we're continuing with that arm, and maybe you'll invite me back to talk about essential oils sometime. And hey, by our other, I know no, definitely. I mean, here, so. we'll try to get Dr. Cardi in exactly. on that as well. We, we, we want to get everybody We're going to have to try hard, but I think we can do it. <laughs> no, no, we're we're uh, maybe charming enough and persuasive enough. We'll get everybody interviewed eventually. Okay. Well, we're at about fifty minutes or so here. Anybody want to add anything that we think we missed, or any crucial information that we want to put out there? I guess just if you suspect you could have a tick. Um, I don't know, visit your doctor or at the very, very least, if you're a student, uh, come up and bother Dr. Keller at the end of your lecture <laughs> and get some advice. He's going to love you for that. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Chris. No, no, I've definitely <laughs> just earned some ire there, but that's okay. Um, don't panic. Uh, people, you know, don't, don't do something silly and try to burn it off. That's uh, it's just crazy make sure that uh you know if, if you're concerned you need to have a yeah you need to have a conversation with your primary care physician yep. that's the that's the most appropriate thing you can do if you're okay worried. cool well let's wrap it up folks uh one thing we do here is that if you do email us we'd love to uh we we read your email on the air and we'd love to hear from you so we got an email from joe joe writes hello dr a and dr c I'm in the MMS class at LECOM, uh, MMS, that's our Master's of Medical Science, uh, this year and started listening to your podcast. I really enjoy it. I wanted to recommend a show on biohacking or do-it-yourself biology or DIY bio, uh, whatever that is. Uh, after undergrad and before going back to LECOM, I tissue cultured some orchids, which got me involved in reading about the biohacking community. In case you are unfamiliar, it's a group of people who think everyone should do science, so they bring together labs in their basements for a couple thousand dollars, put together labs. Uh, here are some links if you're interested. Uh, thanks. I'm a fan of the podcast, and he did give us a few links on biohacking and i've heard of this before in terms of people sort of uh, anybody can do science and hey you yeah. set up a lab in your you know basement or backyard something to look into maybe a potential uh, episode uh, maybe potential episode topic yeah always looking for ideas so uh, that's our show for today um you can remember as always Email us at thebiobusters at gmail.com. And you can find us on iTunes. You just have to search for The Biobusters. You can use virtually any podcast catcher to download our episodes. You can also listen to our episodes on thebiobusters.podbean.com. Dot com, and we're on iHeartRadio, right? According we to are. a few of our listeners, which is. I'm going to also put us on YouTube soon. Oh, oh wow. Well, okay. Yeah, That's I'm going to transfer uh, these audios into uh, YouTube videos, and you know, I'm still deciding what the background uh, images have uh, to be. be interesting hey, to I'm, just, I'm just happy that it's Taylor Swift, uh, I don't know, Madonna, and <laughs> yeah. us on iHeartRadio. Right, yeah. <laughs> so um, I'm. Dr. Chris Fauner, you can find me on Twitter at Fauner916, now officially active, so I don't have to hear from this one about having a Twitter profile filled with cobwebs. <laughs> and I'm Dr. Abby Abdallah Delbert, and you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Delbert. Chris, are you on uh, no, Twitter at all? No, I am Twitterless. 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 Uh, we'll get you, know, you Twitter full. So. Well, perhaps, <laughs> um, but uh, you can always find me on our Lecom website if you need to get a hold of me. Fantastic. Well, Thank you all for listening and thanks Bahana Mani for the music. Thank you. <laughs>